0: Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLA podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Often when people are thinking of donations, they're thinking of live donors. There's a different scenario when it comes to donations after one is dead. These are the catabaric donations that you described.
1: What are the systems that are in place now or... The types of systems that can encourage that? Yeah, so in the United States, is often done through a driver's license. When you register for your driver's license, you opt in uh, to being uh, a cadaveric kidney donor, right? And you have several choices. Uh, what's interesting is in some countries, especially in Europe, there is instead opt out. It's that by definition, you are a donor unless you specify by a government document that you don't want to be. And many people, including some of my colleagues who've written about this, are big champions of. Uh, opt out rather than opt in for cadaveric donations.
0: So is this the same as what we currently have? So instead of on my form, I check a box to become a donor, I have to check a box not to become a donor? Or is it an entirely different scheme that if I don't want to be a donor, I have to go online
1: and fill out a form. So it could be either, right? I think what they have in mind is more the same way in which you opt in now, you'd have to opt out by the same way through driver's license, but we could make it more or less onerous depending on what our tolerance is and what our estimation is that most people would or wouldn't want to do this. So in Spain in particular, they've been very successful. Their organ procurement rates are better than ours, and many people try to attach that to the opt-in, opt-out decision. My own view from talking to transplant professionals in Spain and elsewhere in the world is it's a little more complicated. One of the things that makes it more complicated is that uh, in theory, under law, there is no familial veto in the United States, right? So if a family member says, I know he marked his uh, driver's license this way, but Glenn never wanted to donate his organs, I forbid it, right? In theory, the doctor and the hospital have the authority to counterman the family. In practice, as a matter of the way transplant professionals behave in the United States and doctors behave in the United States, the answer is that they very rarely do. They don't want to have conflicts with the families. And my understanding is that in Spain, that tendency is quite different. And it's the combination of the two things, the opt-out plus this kind of difference in training and ideas about how we think about uh, the familial veto that's interesting.
0: So the more difficult you make it to opt out, the more potential
1: problems you can have in the hospital. That's true, too. Yes, exactly. The more difficult it is to opt out. I mean, there's also this question about it's ideal to have a centralized government database where this can be tracked, because otherwise you're worried that there is some time after someone dies to do a transplant, but not a huge amount of time. right? And you want to start preparing the body as quickly as possible. And if there's doubt, uh, it's a hard question. You know, there are controversial proposals that say, should we even have a right to opt out? Yeah, all, that, that's right? what I wanted to ask. So that was my controversial question. So should we have a right to opt out at all? So I'll first play the argument as to why people who say we shouldn't have a right to opt out say it. And this is a question, actually a deep philosophical question, which is, does it matter after we're dead what happens to us, right? Is my interest, my welfare, or my rights uh, inherent on the fact that I am alive, such that when I'm dead, Uh, it doesn't matter. And just to kind of ease into this, you might think that's a very strange view, but let me just give you a hypothetical to try to tease out a version of this. So, you know, imagine you, I have a brother, I love my brother very much, so John, don't take offense of what I'm about to say, right? But imagine my brother is flying somewhere and his plane crashes in the ocean and he dies in one possible world. In the other possible world, my brother's plane, everybody believes crashes, but he in fact washes up on a beautiful island with beautiful people who take very good care of him and he's happy till he dies. He lives a nice full life, but nobody ever hears from him uh, again. The question is, is my life, Glenn's life, going better in one version versus the other of these two possible worlds? So is my life better in the world where he washes up on the desert island versus the world where he just died? I think my own view, and I think the view of many people I talk to, is, no, his life might be going better, but for my life to go better things have to feed back in some way. I have to experience something in order for it to make my life go better or worse, and philosophers call that an experience requirement. Well, if you believe there is an experience requirement, with death, really, unless you believe in the afterlife, and there are religious views on this, but as a secular view of the government, for example, what position the state should take, Um, How can we think that your life is going better or worse based on what happens after you're dead? And in some ways, that's a great thing. It's a relief to know that after I'm dead, if I've lived a good life, well, my life was good. If I've lived a bad life, well, my life was bad. But nothing that happens after I'm dead is a freedom to it. So if you believe that, you might say, given that these people are dead, why should we care what happens to their organs? If you don't believe that, maybe you have uh, a different view. Well, even if you believe that, that our, our death is the end of our interests or, that our, 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 or even our rights, there are still some reasons why people offer why you might still want to protect them. One is that while alive, if I am very worried about what happens to my body after I die, even if that's an irrational set of beliefs from a secular perspective, if it really will worry me, then to know that the state will go against my wishes might cause me distress while I'm alive and that might be a good reason uh, not to have it. The other possibility, and this is a little bit more philosophical fun or law professor fun, is that actually people might take steps if they're worried that their wishes won't be uh, carried forth, they might take steps to make sure their wishes are carried forward that end up being bad for them, right?
0: So, So move to a hospital in Cuba before right. They're going to die. Or
1: even more dramatically, like, you know, I have a year left, I'm not sure when it's going to happen, so I'm so worried that someone's going to take my organs after I'm dead that I'm going to light myself on fire now or commit suicide early in a way that ruins my organs. Right? Yeah, that is more graphic. That is more graphic. Uh, and again, in trust law, interestingly, there are all sorts of rules about what you can do with your house, about whether you can put in your will that your house be destroyed, so a right to destroy property. And I think most states don't allow you to destroy property after you're dead, so they won't honor those wishes. On the other hand, So after
0: I die, burn my car and exactly. take a wrecking ball to the house?
1: Exactly. Um, on the other hand, we do allow defamation to, uh, to uh, withstand death, right? So your reputation is something that your estate can sue on on behalf of your estate after you're dead. And if in reality, uh, when your life is over, you can't be harmed or benefited, you might think that that is mysterious. So this is to say that um, I think that your views about cadaveric and whether we should be able to conscript people into donating cadaverically are wrapped in a lot about, one, your religious views, which might be different from your secular views but have a law ought to be, and second, your uh, your, your secular views about whether you can be benefited or harmed after you're dead. Uh, Now, all that said, one of the things that's interesting is I've thought a lot about this. Some people have thought a lot about this. I'd venture to say most Americans have thought zero about this. And in reality, it's the unpleasantness of confronting one's own death and really thinking about it that's caused them not to check the box and to do this. So one way of getting traction would be just to have more conversations like we're having here but as a polity to get people to really think very seriously about the way in which their body might be doing something good for other people after they're dead. Now all that said though I want to emphasize as I said earlier that even if we've got hundred percent opt in or opt out 100% of the people who would be eligible to donate donated still
0: wouldn't meet still the still
1: wouldn't meet the the gap we still have about four times the gap uh, so that cadaveric increasing cadaveric is a good idea we should do as much as we can but probably alone won't solve the problem part
0: of your explanation was very philosophical what about the more legal question do you have a right to your body after you're dead does your family have a right to your body after you're dead
1: There is actually state law on the matter. For the most part, there are exceptions, right, in terms of, for example, the coroner's office uh, gets to uh, do uh, an inquest if they need to or the like. But for the most part, what you specify as your wishes in terms of burial, I think, gives you a right under the law. And that right is enforceable. So for example, I think that if you opted for uh, burial and instead you were cremated, your estate might have a cause of action against the funeral service. Uh, There are interesting questions now about body property in general, when we have property or not. So forget about dead people, but just living people. Uh, So I drink a lot of Coke Zero. If I left my saliva on a Coke Zero and you wanted to test it uh, just to find out what my gene pool looks like, would I have a cause of action or a right against you doing that? Uh, The answer, at least for Fourth Amendment purposes that's been kind of held by most of the courts, is that no, the garbage is garbage. And if we leave... You left it behind. Uh, And actually there are some very interesting uh, cases, Uh, there's actually a case that I've written about years ago. Uh, It began with an episode of oral sex gone wrong, believe it or not. So it turns out that in the alleged facts of this case, a woman retained the semen uh, in her mouth and used it to self-impregnate and then sued the man for child support and emotional uh, distress over uh, the fact that she, or she sued her, excuse me for those things because she produced a child with the semen and her defense was in part and I think was successful on the conversion claim the theft claim was that he had not maintained a property interest he in gave the semen he gave it to her and had not tried to retain it whatsoever and so this led to this paper that I wrote about do we have rights not to procreate or rights not to be genetic parents against I our I want wealth? to get you back and do an entire
0: <laughs> an entire conversation on that can we do that no, we can definitely do that All right that, that sounds that. hilarious
1: let's let's get weird
0: a little yeah. bit so Weirder you mean I think let's get weirder. So you can leave requests, you can you can specify Mm -hmm. that your your body should be donated. Can I specify that I want my arm to be used for an art project or my skin to be used for some designer handbag?
1: So I I don't know any case law on the subject. My view is there'd probably be some restrictions in terms of public health law, but assuming there are no public health law reasons, for example, disease or, uh, you know, if you were infected with something or the like, I think probably, I mean, you know, Walt Disney apparently is cryopreserved. There's all these people who cut their heads off and cryopreserve their heads for their own thing. I don't know why public display would be different. Maybe if we were in Giuliani's New York, you might not be able to show it at the Met or at MoMA. But I think that in terms of, you know, somewhere else, uh, I don't think there'd be any problem with specifying that. Let's talk a little bit about
0: organ tourism. This is where individuals in a country like the United States, which prohibits, the the sale of organs, we'll go abroad to buy one.
1: Um, So this is a very interesting topic, I just finished a new book called Patients with Passports uh, for Oxford University Press which is about all kinds of medical travel, medical tourism. Feel free to go out and buy that. Exactly, please do. Um, But the chapter in the book, one of the chapters is devoted to transplant tourism. Uh, And this is a very robust thing that's happening, it's hard to get good statistics because obviously it's, it's criminal. Uh, but I review some uh, anthropological, ethnographic, statistical, medical studies from the Philippines, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Egypt. These are all places where there are widespread networks. These are the high-traffic destinations? These are some of the high-traffic destinations for kidneys, again. Kidneys are the main things being sold. And essentially, you have poor sellers or vendors, it's sometimes called, You have buyers who tend to come from the developed world, or some of them are can be wealthy people in the developing world, and then you have a group of what are called brokers, and these are often low-level mafia because you need to find a doctor who will be paid off to look the other way, a nurse, an OR, and sometimes actually done. So it
0: requires organization.
1: It requires a lot of organization, and organized crime has kind of come into into the gap, and often it's done in a third country. So, for example. Uh, it may be that a Bangladeshi seller is transported to India for the sale to a South African man, for example. So, you know, these people are recruited. They're often poor. They're often illiterate. Uh, their motivation is usually something like getting out of bonded labor, uh, fording a market stall, paying a bride price or a dowry, for example, they're often paid or promised what I would say would be the equivalent of two to four years of wages in the labor market in terms of what's available to them. So the price is very high, although low by our standards, by their standards, quite high.
0: So the prices fluctuate based on their
1: earnings? To some extent, yeah. There are kind of prices that have become uh, uh, equivalent So there's equilibrium prices in these markets in various uh, regions. So what's the price for a kidney? You know, I had to look it up, but I would say it's probably less than $8,000 in terms of what the seller is paid. That's not necessarily what the buyer will pay for it. But in terms of what the seller is paid, it's somewhere under $8,000. I think in most of the cases it's under $5,000. But that is a huge amount of money for many of these people. It's the equivalent of two to four years uh, of wages in the labor markets they typically have uh, access to. And sometimes they're told uh, sort of myths, so one uh, example I write about is a Bangladeshi newspaper uh, which talks about the, and the idea of the sleeping kidney so they're told that one of their kidneys is asleep and if a transplant takes place they'll just wake up the other kidney and everything will be hunky-dory. They're often promised that they'll get to stay in five-star hotels, watch Bollywood movies, get good food. When they get there actually they're living in pretty squalid conditions uh, and sometimes they're threatened that their passport will be taken away or they're threatened by a thug if they try to defect. So very unpleasant. They usually get paid only about two-thirds of what they're promised. So even though they're promised more, they're only typically paid two-thirds of what they're promised. Often there's some kind of bargaining. They're told for some reason their kidney was not as good as they thought. And the most interesting thing is that in the US, nephrectomy scars from transplant are very small. Typically, these are like 13-inch nephrectomy scars. In the books, I have photos of these, these huge scars that really scar and identify these men as kidney men. And so is
0: that because the doctors that they're able to employ aren't necessarily of the same caliber?
1: I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't know why and that I've not talked to any of the doctors who do these illegal procedures, but you certainly… them down? I haven't been able to track them down. No Indiana Jones uh, activities for me. Indiana Glen. Indiana Glen, exactly. Um, but, in, in fact, uh, most of these, uh, these guys who come back, they're marked for life as kidney men. They find difficulty finding a wife in particular. It's mostly men who've been doing this in most of these markets. And then the studies that have followed up with them a year after donation, that's about as long as we go, a year after donation in the studies, they find that probably upwards of 65 70%, maybe higher in some of the studies, regret having made the donation. And actually, say that if they were asked whether to advise someone else to do the sale, they would advise them not to. Now, it's a little tricky because you don't know exactly why the answer is. In most of the cases, it's probably that the money didn't go as far as they thought it would. They were unsuccessful in ending their bonded labor or they got the market stalled, but it never really changed come. their lives. But some of them do report health problems related to the kidney donation. And again, in the US, where we screen very carefully, Uh, The technology and the techniques we use are great. The post-operative care is great. The morbidity and mortality risks are very low for being a kidney donor. Uh, It's reasonable to assume, although there's not a lot of great medical data, that in many of these places in these black markets, the risks of being a kidney donor are much higher.
0: We've kind of discussed the problem, which is in these unregulated markets, there's a high risk for exploitation. There's a high risk for uh, bad outcomes due to less than optimal medical Uh, conditions, what type of legal infrastructure
1: could be put in place to affect it? So my own view is that the transplant tourism case and the U.S. case are very different, in part because while our legal system is not perfect and our agencies, God knows, are not perfect, in fact, it's much easier to put in place a system of regulation of the kind that I have in mind, right? I'm an optionistic buyer, uh, price floors, price ceilings, pre-qualified buyers do interviews, cooling off periods, those kinds of things. To try to impose that uh, in India, for example, from the US for people moving back and forth where all of this is already in a black market, much more difficult. On the other hand, you might think that if there was a legal market that was available, that was well-regulated, and you had the choice as a possible consumer or a possible seller of going to the black market or the legal market, it may actually, in some senses, reduce your incentives to either sell or buy on the black market if there are more open, regulated markets, which is So
0: by allowing uh, the ability to, to incentivize donors here or sellers, you would reduce this uh, tourism, this going abroad to find
1: a kidney. Again, it's an empirical proposition, but my own view is that seems very plausible. Then we'd have a very interesting second question if we were successful that way, which is should we allow foreigners to have access to our organ markets, right? So imagine that we're so good at creating organs uh, sales, we have a surplus or maybe not a surplus. Do we think about this like oil? where we have first dibs or should we just have an open market where it should be available to people from all over the world and perhaps u.s. people could be uh... kidney sellers for the entire world it seems strange it's probably very unlikely
0: citizenship and alienage uh, issues could could come into play there so there there may be a, a constitutional argument that that you can't Discriminate against uh, foreigners.
1: That's right. And what's very interesting is that right now I did another paper looking at what we do now for foreigners. So currently in the US, it is illegal under UNOSIS rules to discriminate against a foreign uh, resident or foreign citizen uh, for organ donor priority. So if they get. It is illegal. It's illegal to do that. So if you live in Canada or Bahrain or anywhere and you come to the US and you can convince a hospital to put you on the kidney wait list. Your priority on the kidney wait list is exactly the same as the priority of every U.S. citizen who is similarly situated, medically speaking, which is fascinating to me. Most countries don't do this. Actually, most countries do restrict the waiting list in some way to their own citizens. But in the U.S., uh, I was fascinated to learn that we don't do that when we're talking about organ donation and allocation rather than sale.
0: So we're relatively generous with uh, our access.
1: In that respect, we are. And again, one of the interesting questions is why we're doing this. So again, you have to be listed by a hospital. In the 80s, there were a bunch of reports of hospitals accepting large donations from people and then listing them on the kidney waiting list. So there may actually be a kind of externality where the system is giving the kidney, but the individual hospital is benefiting. Those are reports from the 80s. I don't know if they were true. I don't know if that practice still continues, but it's something people talk about. This would be like a, a sheikh coming in and making a donation to Columbia right. Hospital, and, and then it turns out that that person was listed. And you know, when we do other, we have also listed just to be fair, children harmed in Iraq, for example, during our occupation there. We have done many wonderful and more obviously charitable forms of doing this, but I think it's an interesting question whether at U.S. citizens are entitled to have a stronger claim on the organs of their fellow U.S. citizens as opposed to people from around the world having claims to those organs? Is it morally permissible to distribute the organs of the U.S. just to U.S. citizens or in fact is that arbitrary and problematic? One area
0: that you described for reducing the negative effects of this uh, organ tourism is by decreasing the demand nationally but what other tools might be in place if we're if the united states doesn't implement uh, additional incentives for for organs are there ways to dissuade American citizens from from getting involved.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one thing we talked about earlier is that the National Organ Transplant Act has no extraterritorial reach. So if you buy your uh organ in India or Bangladesh or Pakistan, that's not a crime in the United States to do that. There's no reason as a matter of constitutional law or statutory law we couldn't make it a crime. We couldn't make it be an extraterritorial offense. We do have some. So child sex tourism is a good example. The Protect Act makes it illegal for a US person to engage in child sex tourism in Cambodia or Thailand. We could similarly make it a crime in the United States to go abroad and buy an organ. So that's one thing we could do. Second, I think more controversially, I've talked about in some of my writing, we could uh, make your ability to get immunosuppressive drugs paid for, either by uh, Medicare and Medicaid or by private insurers, depend on you proving that your transplant was a legal one. So we could say that... So this the,
0: limits the medicine that you might need after, right. that you would need
1: after the transplant. Exactly. If you don't have the immunosuppressive drugs, you'll get organ rejection and the value of the organ will be squandered. to So you. it's not saying you can't
0: have it. It's saying that you might have to pay for it out of pocket. So
1: one possibility, so, you know, one possibility would just be to say insurers are, unala- are not allowed to pay for this if it's not shown to be, or if there's reason to doubt the validity of the organ transplant that it was legally done. You may have a show cause hearing or something like that, but if after you can't prove that it was legally done, which you should be able to do, uh, then we say no payment for it whatsoever. Now again, that would be good and that would be uh, one stronger disincentive for engaging in transplant tourism. If you can buy it on the private market, the immunosuppressive drugs, well now you might worry that it creates uh, socioeconomic status differences, that people who are very wealthy, they don't care that Medicaid, Medicare, or private insurers won't pay for it, but people who are poor. Uh, do care a lot. And to that, you might just say, well, if it turns out, there's, imagine just to say that there were 1,000 transplant tourists a year, and I could cut that down to 500, but the 500 that I would cut out would be poor ones, but I would still be 500 less. Would is that, that a good a, outcome? Is that a good outcome or not? And that depends a little bit on how much you weight uh, equity. Uh, you know, another possibility, and some people have talked about using international criminal law, like the statutes for genocide and war crimes, to try to introduce uh, rules that would treat organ trafficking as a form of trafficking and, uh, you know, a war crime, or ge- like genocide or a war crime in terms of international criminal law. Um, that's a possibility too. I don't know as much about international criminal law to know how successful that would be. There's other things we could do as well, better reporting, and as you said, Uh, Trying to increase the amount of procurement or decrease the amount of demand on the legal side.
0: And for those of us who are listening for MC Lee credit, the code for this talk is 31315. Again, that's 31315. And now back to the interview. Is there something inherently wrong with purchasing organs from another country? or is it just the the fact that they tend to have these externalities
1: and exploitation that we're not able to regulate. So I mean one thing you might think is that we've just kind of outsourced our own problems. This is a question so the WHO the World Health Organization has this view about national self-sufficiency that every country should have its goal that it can meet its own organ demands and therefore, you know, how you fund your healthcare system and think about who's healthy and who needs an organs and how you procure organs that the the, the gold standard would be every country meets its own needs, right? As opposed to the idea that organs would flow between borders. Orders.
0: How is it different than me going to Columbia to get plastic surgery because it's cheaper than New York?
1: Yeah. So I, there's interesting questions about that too that I've written about in my book, including protectionist questions about you know how plastic surgeons in the U.S. do and whether their prices are too high or too low and what the competition would do questions about medical malpractice liability, questions about quality and protecting you as a patient, questions about how this might distort health care being offered in the destination country in terms of getting people from the public sector, working with the poor in Colombia, to instead working with American. So, all of these are true as to organ tourism as well. But I think most people who think of organ tourism as a special case of medical tourism with different issues uh, think that, one, we've outsourced our problems, right? Our problem being our need for organs and our inability to procure uh, enough of them through legal means and through donations uh, and the like. And two, they really do think it matters that there is this imbalance in the socioeconomic status of the people who are buying and the people who are selling. And that there are these other additional violations, threats, lies, deceptions, lack of informed consent. And that all of that maybe characterizes this market as somewhat different from the other kinds of markets. And that there's a dyadic relationship or a triadic relationship. It's not just you and the doctor or you and the healthcare system, but it's you and the healthcare system and the third party whose interests are being furthered or hampered by this exchange.
0: So where do you see actually?
1: the future of this here in the United States and abroad? So I think there's a real push to try to get uh, experimentation with incentives of some form or another. I'm not so sure it will be successful. There's also a strong group who think that if we start relaxing our standards even an inch, even if it's justified, it'll then give a lot of recourse for uh, black markets and the like and for countries that have been offenders to basically go back on what they've said and stop enforcing their own laws. And that is a reasonable concern, and I understand it. But I'm hopeful that we can get some data and that we can better understand the empirical dimensions of this, because I think we've discussed the normative dimensions a good deal, but we don't know as much about the empirics as I'd like.
0: Well, we'll stay tuned. Professor Glenn Cohen, thank you for joining us at Talks on Law. Thanks for having me. Tune back in soon. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.